The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Welcome. Um, we think we've grown out of the belief in evil. It's not in our genes. People don't get possessed. But across media and culture, from Star Wars to ISIS, evil still holds us strangely captive. Why does the devil seem to have the best tunes, or at least the best videos? Is the battle between good and evil an essential part of being human after all? Now, with me to discuss this is Peter Dews, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Essex. He's a leading scholar in critical theory and post-Kantian philosophy and the author of The Idea of Evil. Just after the Second World War, uh, Hannah Arendt, who was uh, famous for many, uh, for many things, uh, she wrote a book about totalitarianism, she wrote a famous book about the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem. Uh, she said, uh, just after the Second World War, uh, that evil is going to be the big uh, philosophical problem in, in post-war Europe. And uh, the striking thing is that for decades, no moral philosophers talked about evil. Her, her prediction was completely uh, mistaken. And uh, I think it's quite interesting to, uh, to speculate why that might have been the case. And uh, my, my, my diagnosis of the situation is that the, the very notion of evil makes us very uh, uncomfortable. It doesn't fit well with our conception of ourselves as enlightened, rational uh, sort of uh, human beings. Uh, and I and, uh, just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about why that might be the case. Uh, I think it's because the, the, the notion of uh, evil uh, presents us with a kind of uncomfortable paradox. Well, what is the paradox? Uh, it, was, it was interesting that after I gave a talk ye yesterday uh, afternoon about, about evil, and a number of the, there were very interesting questions afterwards, but many of the questions revolved around the idea that uh, for example, we might be kind of hardwired in, in an evolutionary way to close in on ourselves, uh, to repel outsiders or even commit violence against uh, alien groups and so on and so forth. And I think the issue is that, um, and this has been a long-standing issue in, in, in philosophy, if you say something is just hardwired, 
then it can't really be evil. You know, if it's just something, uh, it's a kind of mechanism about which we have no choice, uh, about which we have no kind of option, it's just an intrinsic part of how humans behave, then it's just nature. There's no point in using uh, terms of moral opprobrium like evil. Um, on the other hand, it doesn't seem as though uh, the kinds of uh, compulsively destructive behaviour that human beings engage in quite on quite a regular basis uh, is a matter just of choice or free will. That doesn't make sense either. So there's a kind of uh, sort of paradox or tension there. There seems to be something uh, very compulsive about the uh, destructive behaviour of human beings. Uh, towards the end of his life, Sigmund Freud, who saw himself very much as a kind of rational, enlightened, uh, godless Jew, as he called himself, uh, turned towards a concept of what he called the death drive, which was his idea, his way of trying to address this kind of destructive uh, impetus uh, within human beings. Uh, but just to conclude, uh, you know, with my, my basic point, I think the reason why we find it so difficult to come to terms with is that it kind of injures our sense of ourselves as rational and enlightened. Uh, it's not something which is just hardwired for the reasons I gave, because if anything which is hardwired is not something that you can really make moral judgments about. But on the same time, it seems to be compulsive, and it's something very, very hard for us to make sense of. And for that reason, I think we have a tendency uh, to sweep it under the carpet. Simon Baron-Cohen is Professor of Psychology at the University of Cambridge. He's also the author of The Science of Evil and The Essential Difference. He is a world-leading expert on autism. So I'm coming at this from a slightly different angle because I am a scientist, uh, a neuroscientist, psychologist. Um, we're all fascinated by the question of how are human beings capable of, of cruelty. Uh, but to try and explain acts of cruelty in terms of evil, um, I think is scientifically unhelpful um, for several reasons. Um, first of all, you know, the, the notion, the, the concept of evil uh, is really just defined as the absence of good. So there's a dangerous circularity. You say that he did something bad because he's not good. It doesn't really kind of further us in terms of our understanding. Uh, and secondly, I suppose, the, you know, the concept of evil implies that the person is possessed by some supernatural force. And again, scientifically, that's just not very helpful. So what I'll be arguing in this, in this debate, and I wrote a book um, on this topic called Zero Degrees of Empathy, is that the concept of empathy is more helpful from a scientific perspective. Empathy is something that you can measure, um, and that's what scientists need to do to start making progress in terms of understanding uh, what underpins some of our uh, pro-social behaviour, why, why we act you know, well, but also uh, our anti-social behaviour, why we act with cruelty. And um, as a psychologist, um, my view of empathy is that there are two parts to this. So one is cognitive empathy, which is uh, really the ability to imagine other people's thoughts and feelings, sort of um, taking a step to take someone else's perspective. And then there's affective empathy, which is the emotional response you have once you've identified someone else's thought or feeling, whether you have an appropriate emotional response. And those, those two aspects of empathy can be, 
can be studied. They are being studied by neuroscience. Um, uh, part of what I tried to do in the book was to also bring out that there are individual differences in empathy. That empathy lies on a bell curve in the population. So most of us have kind of average levels of empathy. And so we sort of go about our lives trying to uh, behave um, in, a, in a sensitive way to others. Um, some people have very high levels of empathy. They're very good at tuning into other people and respond very quickly to other people's thoughts and feelings. But obviously that means with that normal distribution, the bell curve, that there are some people who have very low levels of empathy. And what I do in, in the book is to look at the social and the biological factors that could push somebody to be at the low end of that empathy spectrum. Um, so zero degrees of empathy is really where you've lost your empathy. And the argument I make is that when someone acts with cruelty, it's because they've lost their affective empathy, that they're not having the appropriate emotional response to someone else's state of mind. And the social and biological factors, maybe we'll come back to this in the broader discussion, on the social side, it would be, it would be factors like obedience to authority, that when you've got an authority figure telling you that it's okay to behave in a particular way, some people lose their empathy under those kinds of social conditions. And there was a famous experiment by Stanley Milgram in, at Yale University where he showed that if uh, a, a doctor in a white coat instructs people to administer electric shocks to people, telling the, the, the volunteer in the experiment that it's okay to do this, to help the person learn, people will indeed administer electric shocks to other people. So that, and they would argue that they're just following orders, they're just doing what they're told. So under certain social conditions, we might lose our empathy for another person. Uh, ideology might be another social factor that could erode your empathy. So when the terrorists flew the planes into the World Trade Center at 9-11, you know, they believed that they were doing the right thing, or at least we, we make the assumption that they believed that they were doing the right thing. We'll probably never know what was going through their minds. But you know, if you're in the grip of an ideological belief that is held so strongly, again, that can blunt your empathy for uh, your victims. Uh, other kinds of social factors might include early neglect and abuse. So John Bowlby, the psychoanalyst, uh, famously studied teenagers who developed delinquency and found that a high proportion of his sample had experienced early neglect or abuse in childhood. They hadn't had the experience of feeling loved, uh, feeling valued, and his argument was that if you miss out on that critical period of, of, of feeling loved and developing a secure attachment with a parent figure, then you don't really develop empathy for others and you can start treating people as if they don't matter, uh, as if they're just objects uh, or even um, uh, you know, steal, stealing from them or hurting them. So lots of social factors, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that biology plays a role in how much empathy a person has. Um, so uh, there's a study by Avshalom Caspi at the Institute of Psychiatry in London that showed your likelihood of becoming a delinquent in your teens is not only a function of whether you've experienced neglect or abuse, 
but it's also a function of what variation of a particular gene you carry. There's a gene called the MAOA gene, and it comes in two varieties in the population. And if you're a carrier of one of those varieties, that significantly increases your likelihood of, of developing delinquency. So that's a genetic factor. Uh, we study prenatal hormones like testosterone during pregnancy to see whether that also um, is correlated with your later empathy levels. So the design is that you measure the hormones in the womb, wait for the baby to be born, and then follow up the children later to see how empathic they are. And again, that's another biological factor that seems to come into the mix in terms of influencing um, your level of empathy later. And finally, just to sort of finish, is that there's the brain, of course. I haven't mentioned um, the circuitry of the brain. We now recognize there are at least 10 different parts of the brain involved in our empathy levels, our ability to recognize other people's feelings, but also to respond to them. And depending on the functioning of that empathy circuit in the brain, again, that can influence how much empathy you show in the moment. So I'm a sort of advocate of um, setting aside the concept of evil. I don't find it helpful. But um, bringing sort of more attention onto the concept of empathy, where we can make some progress in understanding human behaviour. And Rebecca Roach is Royal Holloway philosopher and associate editor of the Journal of Medical Ethics. Rebecca Roach specialises in practical ethics and philosophy of mind and has worked with Nick Bostrom on transhumanism. I'm inclined to think of evil as a helpful concept, um, not necessarily something that we look for within us or within humans, um, but I think the way in which we use the concept is to refer to things that are extremely wrong or bad, but not only extremely wrong or bad. Um, to say something is evil also conveys not only a judgment of um, badness, but also um, something like an expression of the fact that we don't understand it. We want to distance ourselves from it. So it would be strange to say of somebody, uh, he did this thing and it was totally evil, but I, I kind of understand why he did it. You know, we just don't say things like that. We, um, if you understand something, you're less inclined to view it as evil. And I think that's perhaps uh, related to uh, Simon's point that uh, the concept of evil is, is not something that is particularly useful for a scientist. If scientists want to understand things, but to say something is evil is, in a sense, to say that we don't want to understand it. Um, and there was a comment that was made by Primo Levi, who was a, um, a Jew, a survivor of the concentration camps, who was asked, um, after he came out, uh, how he would explain the Nazis' hatred of the Jews. And his answer was that he didn't want to explain it, he didn't want to understand it, because to explain and understand in that sort of way is in a sense to justify it. So once we can sort of identify factors that might have attributed uh, to the Holocaust, that's kind of a road we don't want to go down, because it's just better to say that certain things are evil and we don't want to go any further. And I think there is room for that concept the concept of evil um, in the way we talk about the world and in the way we talk about other people. Um, so I accept that it's, um, it's not the sort of thing 
to say this is a concept that we use to apply to things that we don't understand and yet we want to understand certain things scientifically so it's not going to be something that's useful for a scientist but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be useful just for our, our theorizing about the world and our moral judgments um, there are other sorts of concepts like that uh, so if you say that somebody is um, somebody is funny or somebody is uh, a good friend or, or, or has certain sort of vague qualities that you like. Um, we often use these expressions in a way that, you know, we're not trying to identify some um, biological property of them or even sort of a sort of psychological property that might not be identified with a biological property. Often we just want to make a sort of vague judgment about somebody and we understand what we mean when we talk about these things. So um, if, when we talk about evil to each other, we understand what we mean. Um, you know, philosophers want to sort of get pedantic and sort of ask exactly uh, what we mean when we talk about evil. And there is some, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of usefulness in that. But at the same time, there's a, a usefulness in being able to use expressions without defining them explicitly. Um, so I think that the term evil, um, the concept, has. Uh, has a continuing role to play in our lives. Um, and I think actually it would be a kind of a dangerous road to go down to say that uh, it, the concept is obsolete. Because if evil is used to refer to things that we don't completely understand, we perhaps don't want to understand, to say that the term is obsolete is a kind of arrogance. That's to say that we sort of, um, of all the bad things people do, we completely understand them. Um, we don't fear them, we don't fear those properties in ourselves, perhaps. Um, and I think that's perhaps a sort of, that, that's, that's not what we want from science. I think what we want, we, we, when we want to understand people, it's not just about sort of looking at the biology, um, understanding, um, understanding what, what happens to people in the womb and uh, in their relationship with others. We also sort of want to look at people sort of through the lens of art, almost through the end of art and literature, um, and philosophy, and that often involves um, valuing these sort of vaguer concepts and recognizing the role that they play in our moral evaluations about each other. The debate. Theme one. Okay, so we're going to go into the first bit, which is what is evil? Do you, Peter, do you accept that if you, like, if you kind of, Simon's point that the, your characterization of evil is as a kind of supernatural force that's, that kind of possesses a person? Yeah. Uh, actually, I, w I was, tr I was, uh, what I was trying to say was actually the, the, the opposite of that. Okay. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think in the popular imagination, there's a kind of, you know, there's the, the Star Wars, you know, Darth Vader conception of evil, uh, and and that was, uh, you know, what sort of, if you read uh, uh, George W. Bush's speech about the axis of evil which is available on the White House uh, website. Um, then he does, it's all about the Darth Vader, you know, forces of evil in the world. And it's kind of incoherent in the sense that he's saying, this is wired into the cosmos, but we're going to beat it. You know, and it, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, but is he, so is he saying that evil is kind of, it, it exists outside the people who well, commit the evil yeah, acts? Well, this is very, I think this is very, you know, not, not a helpful way to go. It's obviously, you know, in, in the past, uh, many uh, sort of religious and some metaphysical views have thought that, that there are light and dark forces in the universe. Mm. 
and, and that we're sort of caught in the middle. I don't think that's a helpful way of, of thinking about it. Uh, but I, but I, do, I do think there, there is a kind of conflict within, within human beings. Um, so, so hang on a sec, are you saying that every human has a capacity for evil and a capacity for good and really it's the capacities which shape the person? It's the capacities. I mean, I had an interesting... Uh, just recently I went to see this uh, wonderful but very disturbing film, Son of Saul, about, about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And... and uh, and uh, the friend I went with uh, to see the film was Jewish. And as we came out, he, he said something like, doesn't it make you hate the Germans? Uh, and, uh, and I said, no, it actually makes you realize we could all do that. You know, if we were given a bit of power, But then, we so could then all what you're that. saying is yeah. that anybody can be evil. Um, so evil then becomes a series a series of evil acts rather than a, a, a kind of essential... Yes, I mean, okay. one, one, one point where I would uh, disagree with Simon is that I don't think, and this, I'm kind of in tune with Rebecca here, I don't think evil is, it's not an explanatory concept. It's no. not like saying there's some little mechanism inside us called evil which makes us do stuff. Uh -huh. uh, it's a way of expressing our, our moral repugnance and our reaction to certain things that human beings do. Uh, but with, with regard to what Rebecca was saying, again, I, I, I was very sympathetic, but I think it's not just that we choose, not, we don't want to understand. I think, and Simon will probably disagree with this, there are certain points at which we reach a kind of limit of understanding. And for example, there are some very you know, distinguished historians of the Holocaust who have gone into great detail about the sociological and cultural, political preconditions for what the Nazis did. But then, they, at the end, they say, even after going through all this investigation, there's something I still can't fully understand. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, yeah. Simon, do you... So, evil for you is the absence of empathy. Uh, well, you know, as you heard, I, I don't really um, find it useful to, to even employ yeah. the word no, evil. No, no, no. I just think it's a kind of leftover from uh, a kind of religious framework. Um, you know, I don't know the, the origins of the word. I mean, Peter may be able to bring some history into this, but, uh, you know, certainly, you know, the, this session refers to the devil, and, uh, <laughs> you know, so there's a kind of religious um, backdrop to the mm. use of the language. I completely agree that when we say, you know, what he or she did was evil, is, you know, is, um, it's useful as, an, as a way to express, you know, how very, very, very bad it was. You know, it's, yeah, a kind yeah. of, it's, it's kind of a superlative with you know, lots of varies before it. So in that way, it's serving a function just to say it's so extreme that I can't find another word. But I, I don't find it useful as an explanation. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? The answer to that question is yes. Subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Theme 2 Your whole point was that the point of evil as a concept is this requires no further explanation. You know, we deploy it in order not to get any closer to explaining. Well, I think 
it certainly adds something to... I don't think it's just a superlative. If you ask somebody, oh, what did you think of the Holocaust? And they say, oh, it's very, very bad. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so, well, that's, that's not that bad. That's not, I don't think it's bad enough. Uh, to say it was evil um, adds something. Um, it sort of adds uh, sort of almost reverence for how bad it was. Right. Um, and I, I sort of agree with yeah, Peter sorry. that uh, it's... Uh, you put it better than I did, that we sort of reach a limit of understanding. Uh, but we reach a limit of understanding insofar as we want to view it um, as a sort of moral act, as an act that sort of, uh, we want to evaluate morally. That's not to say that we can't understand it. So, I mean, so, I mean, there are things happening politically around the world at the moment mm. uh, that make me think, um, you know, it's sort of naively believed that we're sort of making progress in politics yeah. and something like the Holocaust can never happen again. And, you know, sort of thing like the, the, the rise of the right wing um, in Europe, um, Trump in the US, our, our current government and so on, uh, are making me think, well, maybe, maybe that's not true. You know, maybe sort of given the right conditions, these things will repeat themselves. And it's really... So I think it would be counterproductive to say of that, well, these things are evil and we don't understand them, so let's just not even try. Um, I think so to say... To say that those sorts of things are evil, uh, we have to, is a way of sort of stepping back and saying there's something, there's something about this that, we, that we'll never understand. But on the other hand, if you, you don't have to view it just as an evil thing. You can view, you can view sort of certain things like certain political events as um, a succession of things that you can describe without using the term evil. So I you don't, say, but I don't think I understand you, because at, at one point you're saying evil is useful because it allows us to go no closer. And on the other hand, you're saying evil is useful because viewed through the prism of art and culture and philosophy and poetry, we can understand people more. And evil is part of the toolkit of those cultural Well, we know, I think we understand what we mean by evil. We understand each other in reference to the evil thing, but we don't, but we're kind of deliberately trying not to understand the evil thing. Is that what you mean? <coughs> well, I think as, as people who moral, morally evaluate the world, um, we're so, of, uh, so from your point of view, the, the purpose of evil is really for the deployer rather than the person of whom it is deployed. It's for us to gather around and say, we signal our opprobrium by using the word evil. Uh, yeah, I don't. Th I mean, I don't think it, it would take something very evil to say. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I'm very evil. I mean, sort of Bond villain. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of people generally don't want to think of themselves as evil, even if you know most of us would say they are. I mean, Peter, where are you on that? Do you think it's more useful as for the user than the person of whom it's used? Well, uh, I mean, I think I think it, descri it describes something uh, about the person. Uh, uh, you're re referring to. I mean, there, there's one additional element that, that I think is, might be useful to introduce, which is that very often uh, when we talk about evil, uh, there's a kind of, it, it's, it's kind of doing bad for its own sake. So, for example, you wouldn't call a burglar who broke into someone's house, uh, particularly if they were impoverished, you wouldn't call them evil. But people who do cruel acts just for the sheer sake of inflicting cruelty, uh, or destruction just for the sake of inflicting destruction because very often when we do wrong things you know we have a perfectly intelligible motive yeah. you know we're ambitious we're greedy you know there's a whole repertoire of very familiar human motives which make us do morally wrong things but when we do something cruel and destructive just for its own sake that seems to me uh, a different kind of order. But of then magnitude. it seems like you're on shaky yeah. ground there, right? Yeah, because yeah. there's always a reason to do an evil thing. <laughs> it, why, and and uh, you know, why, why shut down inquiry? Or why, why stop asking the questions of why did this person do what they did? 
because I think I think you know I think what Rebecca's arguing is that when we use a concept like, like evil, it's uh, because we we don't want to or can't explain it. But whether we're taking a scientific approach or a perspective as a, a social scientist, uh, you know, looking at the political factors or environmental factors behind behaviour, we still ultimately want to try and understand it so that it doesn't repeat, so we can learn from it. And you know, if you take the case of someone who seems to enjoy cruelty, I think that's the uh, the instance you're giving. You know, you're saying, well, that would be evil because there's some pleasure involved. You know. But you know, again, we could still ask, you know, well, why does this person enjoy? You know, what, you know, if we've had, let's take the case of someone who's been abused in their childhood, so we've got a factor that could potentially explain their later behaviour, and then they turn from abused to abuser in their later life, which is w- well documented, happens, you know, happens a lot. You know, should we be looking at the pleasure that the person experiences? That now the roles are reversed; they're actually getting some sense of importance or some sense of power in the situation when previously they felt powerless. You know, th- none of these things are sort of beyond our ability to explain. But isn't that the point? Is that as soon as you do start to explain and understand, you strip yourself of your own moral apparatus because you cannot, as soon as you do understand, you can't judge that person. Well, you're right that, um, you know, that when, when people do bad things or when people act in cruel ways, you know, if once we're trying to understand what are their motives or what are the factors that led to that behaviour, we're no longer simply judging them as bad. You know, it may be that their moral circuitry in the brain has become, in some sense, disabled yeah. through experience. I and mean, that we should actually have some sympathy for the individual. Right. So, but, but Rebecca, you would counter imagine that there is something useful in having a moral apparatus. There is something useful in having the apparatus to say, this is a bad thing which I. I think partly this depends on our social expectations. So if you are talking about, um, if you're kind of sitting around the dinner table talking about child abuse, as, you know, as, you, as we do, um, <laughs> then uh, you'll be expected in that context to sort of, for your conversation uh, to be um, pervaded by a sort of a negative moral judgment. What you're talking about is a bad thing. Um, but if you're, um, you know, so in that context, it would, um, you know, if you're kind of talking about a news story where sort of a child is, is brutally murdered or something like this, and you're kind of sitting around talking about how awful it was, um, it, would be, it would be odd in that context to say, um, well, maybe the person, maybe the person that did this uh, quite enjoyed it. I mean, that would be kind of a conversation killer. So we have sort of certain expectations of the sorts of, the sorts of judgments that we make in those situations. And those sorts of judgments don't hold in the scientific context. So if you are um, a neuroscientist or, if, or a, a psychologist or a social scientist... Or a judge. Seek, what about a judge? It, yes, exactly. I yeah. mean, judges but don't we all have a responsibility? You know, just because we're not all scientists, don't we all have a responsibility to observe the rigour of science, which is that it's better to understand something if it can, to be, if it can be understood than not to understand it? Um, I mean, in this context where you've sort of all gathered together here to understand something, maybe, but, you know, we're kind of... Uh, I, I, I don't think there's an imperative to try to, to understand, understand everything. General, yeah. <laughs> no, thank God. What about string theory? Um, <laughs> so, I want, I want to go back, just before we move on, 
I want to know what evil is. Are we saying there is a kind of innate quality of evil that even if that evil person commits no evil acts, having no opportunity, that evil still exists? Or are we saying evil is the accretion of evil acts? Or are we saying evil doesn't exist? Well, I think it's a potential inside everyone. I mean, that's, that's why, uh, you know, uh, I think... Uh, I can well understand why people want to sort of drop the term because it has all these terrible kind of ideological and religious abuses. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, but uh, uh, as Rebecca was saying, I think there are times when we, 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 can't, we, we, we can't do without it. And I think that we're, we're getting to a point where there's a kind of, uh, kind of conflict emerging between a kind of scientific way of looking at human beings and what you might call a kind of um, sort of humanistic or kind of you know literary or kind of intuitive way of looking at human beings, and and this is a long-standing clash in in modern culture, you know the the the, the clash between seeing ourselves objectively and scientifically and seeing ourselves as fellow human beings in what philosophers call the life world, the world that we all inhabit, um, and so it's very difficult to resolve. But one one point I would make is that uh, you know. Certain kinds of explanations seem to leave us unsatisfied. So, for example, you know, uh, we could, you know, Simon was talking about the uh, 9/11 um, uh, perpetrators, and you could say, well, they believed they were doing the right thing. They would believe they were doing it for Allah and so forth. And, and you could say, well, you know, uh, Hitler thought he was doing it for the good of Germany. You know, he had to eliminate the Jews. They were like a virus. Uh, and you know, there are some philosophers who, th- going all the way back to sort of Socrates, who thought no one ever does bad deliberately. They just have a mistaken idea of the good. Uh, Hitler had a mistaken idea of the good. Osama bin Laden had a mistaken idea of the good. And I think that's something that always leaves us unsatisfied. You know, it's not just they had a wonky idea of the good. There was something. So well, well that yeah, I mean, that leads yeah. us back to you, yeah. it, it, and yeah. because it leads you, leads back to the position, they just have an absence of good. There is no such thing as evil because there is just an absence of empathy. Yeah, but I mean, whether you're a scientist or whether you're just um, you know an observer of human behaviour, um, you know, you do want to try to make sense of what people do, whether it, whether it's Hitler or any, anyone else, and you know, to try to sort of enter into the mindset of Hitler, um, and uh, you know. I, I suppose it's, you know, it, it's done to make sense of the world, but it's also done to try and learn the lessons. I mean, Rebecca, would you slightly quibble with that d- d- kind of division between science and art? Because actually both are engaged in trying to understand the human condition. Yeah, I think so. I also think um, this idea of looking for evil as something in us yeah. is... I mean, that might be mistaken, so I can see why it's there. You know, it's this perhaps hangover from religion, where um, you know, as, as you said, Simon, there's, it, it sort of might carry a connotation that somebody is possessed yeah. somehow. But we don't tend to do that with other concepts. You know, if we say that somebody is our friend, we don't mean that they somehow possess a property of friendship that we can find in <laughs> them. We're, to, we're just that's just not how the concept of friendship works. We don't, we don't use it that way. And it may be that evil the most appropriate way to view evil in a kind of secular context is in a similar way. We're using it as a way of categorizing the world, but we're not necessarily using it to refer to a property that we find in people right. or in things, because I, th- I think you know, one thing we haven't discussed is that we sometimes use the term evil to describe you know, like diseases, uh, so things yeah. that don't, we don't even think that they carry a sort of human um, 
unless we think a human has invented a disease. But uh, you know, we can talk about evils in a metaphorical sense to so, talk about bad things. So in the we world. seem to have coalesced somewhat. It, 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 if, you, if you accept that evil exists, which you don't, but if you accept that it exists, then we accept that it, <coughs> it, is, it exists in its acts, yeah. and that it exists partly in order to shore up our kind of moral sense of ourselves. In that the ability to define evil is what is part of what we need to be moral people. Uh, I think suggesting that evil exists is again, I think maybe sort of edging towards a view of it where it's this thing in the world. So you that we don't can point think it to. exists. I think I think it's a useful concept, <laughs> just the way that lots of things are useful concepts. Philosophers, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. Um, but I think Rebecca's also saying it's a very fuzzy concept, like, right. like the concept of friendship. You kind of attribute it as a quality to somebody without really being able to pin it down or dissect it. And and is I, its use in its fuzziness? Uh, well. I suppose you know you're saying that that's that's how it does its work by not being sort of you know it's it's a bit slippery and you can't really define it very well and I suppose you know what what we try and do when we when we analyse words or analyse concepts is is try and be more precise and actually see whether it does any work for us and my argument is it doesn't really do much work for us at least not as um, you know as an explanation for behaviour. Theme three. So, the, the, you know, there's a, there's a real love affair with evil in the kind of... That, that whole thing that foxes and humans are the only people who kill for pleasure. Mm. Um, there seems to be a kind of sense of evil as, a, as, a, as part of the human toolkit yeah. that we take a perverse pride in. Mm. Do you think that's true? I'm not sure whether we take a perverse pride in it. I do think that there was a kind of worrying trend uh, a few years ago where, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, you know, Hannah Arendt predicted that everyone would be talking about evil after the Second World War. Yeah. It didn't happen. And then there was a kind of resurgence of interest. And, uh, and there's always been this kind of fascination with evil be- because I think human beings are fascinated by transgression. Yes. You know, whenever there's a rule, somebody, someone is going to want to break it. Uh, and and uh, evil is the kind of ultimate breaking of rules. Uh, so I think there's something about that which just just inherently inherently fascinates us. Uh, I wouldn't mind bringing back the Holocaust into the discussion because <laughs> both Rebecca and Peter have mentioned it, and I saw that film Son of Saul quite recently too, and uh, you know it is incredible. Um, you know, it's set inside the gas chambers in Auschwitz. It's kind of not, I mean, it's drama, but it's, it's not a situation where you, um, where you often have the opportunity to see what went on. You know, and you've got the main character whose job it is to kind of pull out the bodies from the gas chambers um, and uh, so that the next load of Jewish uh, or other um, inmates can be told to go and have a shower in the gas chambers and they're being deceived, you know, they're being told that it's just a shower, you know, and you're, you're seeing life inside this, and, and the, you know, the concentration camps have, been, have, have often been used as examples of where human behavior was so extreme, it must be the ultimate example of, of evil. And yet, you know, what we want to do is try to understand the guy whose job it was to pull the bodies out, or the, the guards who were in the concentration camp whose job it was to get the inmates to go in and have the showers. And, you know, Hannah Arendt, as you've mentioned, you know, was, was trying to understand this in the context of, of, of the trials in Jerusalem. And, um, but, you know, I think you mentioned under certain circumstances, maybe all of us would behave in that way. And that's already kind of 
edging us towards what are the, what are the situational factors that might operate on any of us. We think we're moral, reasonable people with empathy, but under what conditions might we feel we've got no choice? You know, if it's either to, to be killed ourselves or to cooperate and, and uh, collaborate with a Nazi regime, would we all do the same thing? But the, you're, you sound like you're saying, t- it, it, so long as there is a situational factor, the concept of evil doesn't obtain. But actually, you could just as well say, we all contain a kernel of evil and the right situations will set it up. Yeah, well, as, as I said earlier, I, I would just use different language. Oh, okay. You know, we, we, we have our, uh, our, our own individual levels of empathy uh, which allow us to be sensitive to other people's feelings and to sort of tune into the subjectivity of another person. Mm-hmm. But under certain conditions, that can be blunted. Yeah, yeah. I think um, this sort of scientific approach to understanding these things in a way sort of presupposes the, useful co- the usefulness of the concept of evil. Yeah. Uh, because in order to decide that these things are worth understanding in the first place, we have to make a judgment that they're... Um, very bad, <laughs> and, but there are, you know, there are lots of very bad things in the world, you know, just sort of missing trains and stuff like that, and you're late, running late for something, like these things can be very bad, so, you know, the, the concept of evil as a way of sort of picking out the most important things that it's uh, worth trying to understand so that they can be prevented from reoccurring in the future, yeah. um, that's where the concept of evil might come in, and once you've maybe identified them, then it's, it's useful to kind of uh, remove the concept and say, okay, well, let's with a sort of cold, um, empathy-free hat on, almost like let's let's work out what the uh, what the factors here that we need to study are. Yeah. Okay. I mean, my dad was a criminal psychologist, and he always used to say there was no such thing as good and bad. There was only squeamish and not squeamish, which I think was actually a precursor of empathy. It's like if you, he, he was using squeamishness to mean. If you could imagine what it would feel like to stab someone, you were squeamish. But that was always the criminological view, was, yeah. that, um, sure. was to kind of remove the morality of the situation. And it seemed to me that it, when you professionally have to deal in evil acts, the, the concept of evil is the u- least useful thing you can possibly deploy. Yes, yeah. I mean, there is one point I wanted to make about, about empathy, actually. I don't, don't know whether Simon sort of takes this into account, but some, some, some philosophers have said, actually, empathy isn't all... Is, is, isn't uh, sort of cut and dried when it comes to talking about morality because uh, someone who is very empathic and has a very strong sense of how other people are feeling can actually use that to be cruel. I mean, the person you could be most cruel to is your husband or your wife because uh, you really understand how they feel and then you can exploit your understanding of how they feel. So, uh, I mean, em- empathy, can, empathy itself and can that's, be abused. That's why, I, yeah. I, at the beginning, I kind of distinguish between cognitive empathy and affective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, famously, psychopaths have very good cognitive empathy. Yeah, yeah. Mm. They, can, they can imagine what someone else might, might feel uh, they can uh, imagine what someone else might think, and that's why they're very good at deceiving other people, manipulating people. But, so that's the cognitive empathy, but the affective empathy, there's quite a lot of evidence that psychopaths who do you know, terrible crimes have reduced affective empathy. So you can measure affective empathy, for example, by looking at heart rate or other measures of physiological arousal, whilst you're showing them images of somebody in distress, and they have reduced affective response or physiological arousal to these images, seeing somebody crying or seeing somebody hurt. 
So, you know, another way of putting it is that they're, they're good at, um, at imagining other people's perspectives, but they just don't care. And it's the absence of caring, that's the affect of empathy, that allows people to hurt others. Is it possible to be high in affective empathy and low in cognitive empathy? Yeah. And in fact, um, you know, I work uh, with people with autism, and they, they have the kind of opposite profile to psychopaths. Right. They struggle to read people, to read facial expressions to, or to imagine another point of view. But they do care about others. If you tell someone with autism that somebody else is suffering, it upsets them. So, so, they, so it, it's an example where uh, in different medical conditions, and I would, I would see psychopaths as, as a medical condition, you can see these different components of empathy dissociating. So, I mean, do, 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 would either of you demur at that to see psychopaths and, and people with autism as, as just on a spectrum of pathology? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, dis- disagree with that. Yeah. So psychopaths aren't evil, or they are evil, but it's not their fault? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that um, um, we can take into account all the environmental and upbringing factors and so on and so forth, and people can still turn out different ways yes. uh, so the, the, this goes back to what we were saying about the limit you know uh, and so the a- Emil Fackenheim who's a Jewish philosopher who you know wrote a book called to mend the world which was about the impact of the Holocaust on philosophy and and uh, theology he said uh, well even if we know, know everything about Hitler's upbringing and his childhood and his parents and so on and so forth there's still going to be something that that doesn't... No matter how much information we have, there's something that, that is going to be yeah. uh, elusive. But is this, yeah. just a, is this just a kind of um, dissatisfaction with reductionism? Because yes. obviously something like um, cruelty is, is multi-determined. There are many factors go into determining why someone acts in the way they do. And you could list them all, and we might still sort of have more that we want to add to the list upbringing, genes, all sorts of things. But is it that uh, we don't want to be reductionist in that way? Because certainly as a scientist, reductionism is seen as the goal. You know, we're, trying, we're trying to reduce the behaviour to sort of a smaller set of exp- explanatory factors. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.